Welcome to the Viral Podcast. Today for our very first episode, we are going to talk about public health and superstition. We also have a really great interview with the editor-in-chief of the American Journal for Public Health, Dr. Alfredo Moravia. Here's the show. There is a great difference between what we believe and what we know. Sometimes there are customs, fears, or traditions that get passed down by generations of humans while the original meaning gets lost along the way. Welcome to Viral. I'm Quinn Lundquist. And I'm Lindsay Grove. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Quinn. What do you say when someone near you sneezes? Um, I usually say salud, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, sometimes I get a little flare and I say gesundheit. <laughs> what is the, uh, the traditional... Yes, it's bless you. That's right. Do you know why? Or have you ever thought about it? I have, and I am pretty sure I know why. Mm -hmm. It's because way back when... Way back when. um, When we didn't really understand germ theory, uh, people said bless you because they thought that your soul was leaving your body for a hot minute, and then they said God bless you to make sure it went back inside. So that's one of the explanations. Oh, okay. I have another one here for you. And there are a few theories about this. That's one that you, that you just said. I'm real good about it. Pope Gregory I, also known as Saint Gregory or Gregory the Great, lived during the 500s AD and is regarded as one of the four doctors of the Latin church. Although in this sense, they mean the original meaning of the word doctor, which is teacher. In Latin. Interesting. Which is where we get the word doctrine as a teacher of the faith. Oh. So long story short, short, this guy was a famous pope who is important to other church folk. Anyways, when he was made pope, the bubonic plague was raging through Europe. An early sign that the virus had begun to take hold was a sneeze. So around the year 600 AD, Pope Gregory is attributed by some historians as suggesting that anyone sneezing should be blessed immediately. Wow. Some uh, holy prevention. Holy moly. (laughs) Give me a dose of prayer, doctor. Stat. Gosh. So by the year 750, it had become customary to say, God bless you, as a response to one sneezing. And as I imagine it, it was probably followed by the person running the hell away from the sneezer. Oh, I, I can definitely imagine that. <laughs> so fear of the unknown is a powerful thing. I think we can both agree on that. Yes. When we don't know how something works, the mind, our collective imagination, tends to fill in the gaps. For instance, ancient healers believed that disease was the result of demons entering people and that only the healers had the powers to scare them away. Interesting. The Egyptians and later the Romans believed that disease was something the gods had punished them with and only by pleasing the gods through prayer or through sacrifice could your sins and thus your disease be healed. Obviously, we've come a little bit further since then, but um, that's kind of the original idea between uh, health and superstition. So do you remember that show, that Nickelodeon show, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Uh, duh, of that course. That was my <laughs> jam back in the oh, day. Oh, for real. I, I loved that show. Yes. And so scary. Sometimes I'll go back and I'll watch the episodes now, and they're still scary. 
Right? Zebo the clown. Yes. The uh, monster who hangs out in the school swimming pool There's... was a particularly upsetting yeah. one. There was the one where like it was the store and if you bought anything in it, it was like it would it basically there was like an exchange and like your soul was essentially taken. Sure. Like you do. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah. Terrifying. So unsurprisingly, there are a lot of superstitions related to the dark and the air we breathe Mm. at night. Oh, interesting. So just the air that just night air. Yes. Apparently, fear of night air was a significant fear of many people for hundreds of hundreds of years. So, in the play Julius Caesar, Brutus's wife Portia warns his sick husband not to steal out of his wholesome bed to dare the vile contagion of the night and tempt the roomy and unpurged air to add unto his sickness. Weird. I really enjoy the phrase uh, "roomy and unpurged air." Yes, in, that's in that. uh, that's pretty great. Those are some great ways to describe night air. Night air. So some speculate that malaria was common in ancient Rome, and that the mosquitoes which carry the disease happen to be more active at night. Thus, there being a certain negative outcome associated with being abroad after sundown. So it's not like they were wrong. They saw an association here and saw they sort of did the old causation correlation thing because they didn't have the science to necessarily figure out what was happening. But they noticed that people who hung out outside who had jobs that involved them being outside, especially at night, tended to get sick. So I'm going to blow your mind uh, with this next little tidbit. Oh, Please do. Did you know the word malaria actually means bad air? I did not, but but I guess mal- it's mal and then air. aria. Aria, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Malaria was associated with bad air because many people who contracted malaria actually lived close to swamps, which okay. is where the mosquitoes were breeding. Okay. And if everyone's getting bit by mosquitoes. Some people get sick, but they associated it with the bad air of living near a swamp. Hmm. The more you know. Right? And now we have mosquito nets, which is awesome. That is true. And are a great way of preventing the spread of malaria. Trademark. Mosquito nets. They're great. (laughs) Great. That's such a wonderful time. This episode of Viral was brought to you by (laughs) Mosquito Nets. Oh, goodness. So I, let's, let's hope we get this. Sponsor. Americans actually had a particularly weird relationship with night air, so much so that it can be traced all the way back to Ben Franklin, who tried to convince John Adams one cool night to leave his windows open when he went to close them. John Adams was afraid of the night air, and Ben Franklin was like, no, 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 I have some theories about this, and tried to lecture him about them, and John Adams was like, I'm still going to close those windows, though. Yeah, like, thanks, dude, but uh, night air. I get the whole key in the kite thing, but let's just close the windows. Yeah. So we used to have this idea that bad air caused disease. 
a physician named Daniel Drake wrote in 1850 about how disease-causing vapors called miasmas mm -hmm. actually rose up from the soil or rotting vegetation or foul water to cause disease, especially at night. Man. Yep. But not everyone was a believer in the evils of night air. In the 1860s, Catherine Beecher and Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote a housekeeping manual called The American Woman's Home and criticized in sassy yet flowery language, as common of the 1800s, avoidance of contact with the natural world. They were all about becoming more one with nature. Hmm. So here's a passage I love. There is a prevailing prejudice against night air as unhealthful to be admitted into sleeping rooms which is owing wholly to sheer ignorance. In the night, everybody breathes night air and no other. Dang, that's some saltiness. Yep. I love it. I love it. Why are you guys afraid it. of night air? At yeah. night, we all breathe night air. Man, that's airtight logic. That's uh, what I like to call an 1800s mic drop. Ooh, damn. Or a megaphone drop or a fountain pen <laughs> drop. So, if I were to try to get into every health-related superstition, this podcast would probably turn into its own series just on that. So, I just have one more thing to share, and this is a quote from E. Earl Rath, professor of health education at Iowa State Teachers College in 1952. Ooh. Quacks who hasten death and annually fleece the public of millions of dollars thrive on ignorance and superstition. It might be a good idea for all people to turn on the cold light of scientific reasoning and see how much of what they believe about health is fact and how much is only superstition. Ooh. And that was written in 1952. I love it. Before the huge boom of supplements that you can find everywhere, <laughs> fad diets and other unscientific methods of achieving the best health, quote, air quotes, there were still snake oil salesmen, and we'll talk about that another time, but I think that every I think of everything that has happened since 1952, and this guy was there saying, hey, how about we apply reason before we do things that hurt people? Hmm. It's kind of like... Go figure. Yeah, go figure. That's kind of like the foundation of public health. Yeah. Pretty so cool. in the year of 2017, what do we make of this? It's obvious that culture plays an enormous role in our daily lives. Very true. And part of the idea of public health is that health is more than what happens in the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. Health happens where we live, work, play, worship, etc. So is superstition harmful? Is it benign? Is it like, how, what do we do with this kind of information as public health professionals? To me, I kind of draw the line at the point of where it becomes a commodity, where you start, people start selling stuff based yeah. on a fear of sickness or a false hope of eternal youth, that kind of thing. That's, for me, where I draw the line between superstition and pseudoscience. I don't know how you feel about it, but that's... Interesting. Um, I, I think I would have to agree because, um, yeah, to me, I definitely think that a lot of times pseudoscience and superstition are entwined or intertwined, right? Mm -hmm. um, that a lot of times 
one fuels the other potentially, but I do agree that there is, um, I like your idea of the fact that it stopped as a commodity. Um, Because obviously, once it becomes a commodity, it's less about protecting the person and more about making profit, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it is interesting that we're talking about it, you know, even now in 2017, just because we still see a lot of, you know, definitely a lot of pseudoscience, but we'll talk about that in a later episode. But um, yeah, I don't know. One of the things that pops in my head is like the five second rule. You know, people are like, oh, oh, it's been on the floor for less than five seconds. Let me eat that. Yeah, but you can't exactly see the bacteria that just got on the thing. Right. So. Right. So while that's not necessarily, it doesn't have anything to do with like. Or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. It's like, uh, it, it could uh, it could maim you. It could uh, create chronic illness. Uh, I mean, potentially it makes your immune system stronger, but it also could make you immunocompromised. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, hmm, yeah, that's a little problematic. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, and this kind of gets into the idea of cultural practices yes being very important to people and being very important to how public health professionals especially um united states based public health professionals deal with um outbreaks around the world right we saw this with um, the ebola outbreak a couple of years ago where um death practices and burial practices were very important to people in West Africa. Right. And that involved a, a huge, there was a huge cultural barrier mm-hmm. between what people were expected to do as a part of their culture when someone in, someone in their family dies versus what these people from another country wearing giant spacesuits were telling them to do. And we saw, you know, some conflict there. Um, so I feel like it's it's still important to be aware of what cultural practices are. And as long as they're not harmful, I'm like, yes. Yeah, no. And I think that's why you've seen a lot more um, suggestions for having anthropologists be involved when doing work abroad um, or even just more... Uh, even more courses or I don't know just more training for public health educators to really at least understand you know I mean we could have an entire episode on cultural competency versus cultural humility but um, I definitely think that there's some interdisciplinary practices that could be used to kind of help bridge some of those cultural barriers yeah yeah so um, that's all I have for today uh, I feel like there's we could probably go on forever talking about superstition, but oh yeah, uh, I feel like I have a feeling this will come up again. Mm. I mean, it. I'll I'll knock on wood. Oh, okay. I was gonna say. Oh man. <laughs> All right. So our next uh, piece of this episode is our interview with Dr. Moravia. Okay, so this is Dr. Alfredo Morabia. 
Um, he is the editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Public Health. He's also currently a professor of clinical epidemiology at the Department of Epidemiology at the Mailman School of Public Health in Col at Columbia University. And he is also a professor of epidemiology at the Barry Commoner Center for Health and the Environment at Queens College, City University of New York. Welcome to Viral, Dr. Morabia. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Yeah, welcome. Um, so I guess, uh, what got you interested in public health, uh, epidemiology and biostatistics? Well, it's, it's an old story. It goes back to the sixties and seventies. And, uh, you know, those were time in which, uh, many, uh, uh, medical students, you know, wondered how they could be useful, uh, for, uh, for society in general, not only as MDs, but, uh, you know, as, as participants, as, as citizens. And uh, my first interest was uh, to become a occupational doctor. So that mm. I was in Geneva, in Switzerland, and uh, oh, wow. it was a, an option. But, I mean, it, it was not a very well-developed uh, discipline uh, in, in medicine. So to train, I had to go to Italy. And um, so I went uh, to Italy in 1982, and there I spent two years. I trained in actually prevention on the workplace. And while I was there, I met all those uh, occupational doctors, and they were telling me, you know, occupational medicine is, is great. But epidemiology, and I had never heard of it, you know. Right. This is what's really interesting. This is, and so I, I bought a textbook and I started reading it, and it was like, you know, uh, love at first sight. You know, I, I, I felt totally, you know, a passion for, for this discipline. And I thought, you know, this is really what we need in Switzerland. Uh, there's no epidemiology. Uh, and, and, and before even having, you know, prevention in the workplace, we, we need to have epidemiology. And also there were more possibilities to be effective being an epidemiologist than to be an occupational doctor because access to workplaces were almost impossible. In Italy, they were, uh, they had the new law. Everybody, I mean, a lot of people had access. They had lots of inspectors. But in Switzerland, it was another story. So I came back and uh, and I, I wrote a grant proposal. And this was the first time an MD was asking to become an epidemiologist. And so I got oh, wow. it. And I went to Hopkins. I trained there. And so, uh, so that's what, you know, there was a, an interest in public health and, uh, epidemiology was a discovery on the way. And for biostatistics to answer all the full question, <laughs> when yes. I was, when I was in at Hopkins and trained, uh, I noticed that, uh, you know, a background in biostatistics would be indispensable because going back to Switzerland, I would be the only epidemiologist and there would be no statistician around. Oh, so, man. so I decided, uh, uh, and, and I had a training, you know, a classic training in, at that time in Switzerland, uh, uh, it was in Greek and Latin. I had almost no math background. So, <laughs> it was a very uh, a great necessity. So I, I trained in biostatistics, uh, and I did the joint 
degree, which was PhD in epidemiology and master in health sciences in, in biostatistics. Part of the purpose of this show is to look at history and tell stories from history about public health to help us understand current issues and the context in which those current issues exist. And so Lindsay tells me that you are a public health historian, and I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit and um, kind of how you got into that. Sure. Uh, it, it I'm, I'm really uh, an historian of epidemiology, uh, not so much of public health, which is not sure. exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, I've been interested in history uh, for all my life almost, and I wanted to become a historian, but uh, for some reason I didn't, uh, uh, which are another story. But uh, essentially, I've always been interested in, in history. I always studied it, and even though I don't have a formal degree, I have a, a very uh, important background in, in history. Um, and so uh, I was approached by a, a history professor in Switzerland who organized each year a conference about different uh, medical disciplines, and uh, they wanted to do something about epidemiology, and he said, can you help? And uh, so I had to organize this conference, which was a summer conference of a week with people coming from all over the world. And this, uh, in some way, uh, boosted uh, a new uh, dimension in my intra historical interest because I preparing this conference and a book related to it uh, made me, you know, back on track. And uh, I, I discovered that there was a lot I could do as a historian for epidemiology. So why is the, the history of epidemiology important? Well, because, you know, history is important for everything. I think uh, th there are two... Um, in science, uh, you want to understand what's going on. I mean, you want to have observed, get evidence uh, to know what's going on. But uh, you also need to know where things come from, you know, and uh, where they may go. And, uh, and this is what history tells you. And uh, so understanding the past is really... A, important you know to what you're doing in the present so uh that's why i mean history is, is important for all of us all the time i think it's it's uh, an extremely important discipline too often yeah. it's considered as a hobby you know it's nice mm -hmm. to read about history you know it's like a, you have a you, you um, increase you, you have some culture uh, about the past, but it's it's much more than that. Uh, the real history is what we're living right now. Uh, the past is gone. You know, we can mm -hmm. study it because it left some uh, um, traces. But uh, the real history is the one we're doing now, and uh, and so in order to be conscious of, of what we are doing and uh, uh, what we are, um, where we're going to, it's important to know where we come from. I totally, totally agree with you on that. Um, and 
you know, that kind of leads into the, our next question. Um, so obviously there's a lot going on. And like you said, we're living history today. Um, what do you, can you think of any, I guess, issues in health right now that you feel like are relatable to historical events or that could be solved, like looking back at historical events? Yeah. I mean, uh, Whatever uh, health question we're facing today, uh, we faced some similar question in the past or some related uh, questions in the past. So, um, let, let's, let's take a, a, an interesting example. Um, you know, there, there is uh, this issue of vaccines, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well aware. Vaccine-preventable yep. <laughs> diseases that are making a comeback. Yeah, yeah. But but especially uh, the fact that apparently people that um, uh, criticize vaccines for uh, being responsible for lots of diseases in, uh, in children, you know, w- without real evidence, it seems to right. uh, find now some support in, uh, uh, in high level uh, of the government. Uh, th- there is an interesting example of the first type of, um, of vaccine you know, that was available in America. Mm-hmm. This was in the 18th century. And uh, 18th century, this is uh, the time of the American Revolution, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, in the 18th century, so in, in 1700 and after, uh, one of the most dreadful epidemic uh, infectious disease was smallpox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, smallpox uh, in Europe was so common that almost everybody got infected as a young person. So, as an adult, it wasn't such a problem, but uh, as a child, you could die, or you could get the disease, and the disease left. Uh, um, scars uh, on the face or in the body, but mostly, you know, they, they were terrible on the face or they could uh, leave you blind. Too. So it, it was, a, it's been called, smallpox has been called the greatest killer of uh, history. And uh, since uh, the plague had been, um, started to disappear in that century, uh, the question was, you know, what could be done against smallpox? And a, um, the wife of a, an ambassador in Turkey, uh, Lady Montagu, a very young woman with her two young children, had been in Istanbul. And uh, she had found out that uh, there was a tradition there, a kind of folk practice, that uh, um, at some point uh, parents would uh, bring their chi- children together and some old ladies would come and inoculate some uh, smallpox material, you know, some uh, uh, infectious material taken from the vesicles of, of someone infected, and they were scratched that into the skin of young children. Right. And those children, a few weeks later, they would have some fever, etc., and maybe some uh, small lesion on their skin, but that's it. And they, they would uh, uh, get better, and, and after that, they would be uh, immune against smallpox for the rest of their life. And I wonder so, what people thought about that at the time. 
So at the time in England, when she came back, people thought, well, this is, you know, Turkish. <laughs> this is, uh, this is, uh, underdeveloped, uh, medicine. This is not like the medicine we have here. We don't believe in that. And, uh, the, 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 the doctors, uh, and, and uh, the medical establishment in England, fought against it, you know, in Britain fought against it and they, they were against, but the, the princess, um, actually, uh, followed the recommendation of, uh, of Lady Montagu and, and she actually, uh, inoculated her two children. So the doctors, and this answers your question, started to say, well, artificial exposure to smallpox, you know, this inoculation, kills more than if you get smallpox naturally. Yeah. So, so that was their argument. Mm. And this was an epidemiologic question. You know, does artificial smallpox kill more than natural smallpox? And epidemiology was just, you know, emerging as, as, a, as a new discipline. And uh, so one um, scientist decided to do a study. And he sent a questionnaire to all uh, doctors that were practicing inoculation in the United Kingdom and in America, which was part of, you know, of um, which then belonged also to... Uh, to Britain, and he received the the results uh, of their data, and he looked, and actually, if you inoculated some people, uh, some children, there would be one percent of them who would actually die uh, as a follow up of uh, the um, the inoculation. Hmm. But when you got smallpox naturally. There were 10% of the children who got smallpox wow. who would die. So it was a, a, a 1 to 10, you know, a, mm -hmm. ratio. And so it proved that uh, smallpox inoculation was extremely protective. And so there was a flurry of uh, inoculation in, in the UK. There were smallpox hospitals, etc. And so why do I bring this story? Because... In the United, in, in America, which were not the United States yet, um, when, you know, the, the, the revolt began uh, against, uh, Britain, um, the Continental Army, uh, had a problem with smallpox because the English, uh, the British soldier who came to America, they usually were immune or they were carrying the disease with them. But it was not a big risk for the British because most of I didn't them know were. That. Hmm. Whereas when there was a confrontation between the British and, 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 and the regiment from the Continental Army, it was a devastation in the Continental Army. Wow. It was a devastation. I mean, many would get the disease or die, etc. And so the question of inoculating the Continental Army was, you know, was, was raised and Washington, George Washington, you know, raised the question several times, but there were opposition, you know, why was there opposition in the Continental Army and its, its leader? Because they were deeply religious and they thought that inoculation was a way of defying providence. Oh. 
And so that it, it was not right as a religious person to actually uh, use this um, this tool and this this, uh, this way, and um, and this form of what we would call today vaccination. But then it was not. It's it's a little bit different. It was inoculation, and the situation evolved, you know, very badly for the Continental Army at some point. You know, uh, the British was uh, were about to destroy it. And at that moment, uh, George Washington actually uh, convinced uh, the Continental Congress to adopt inoculation. And, and very quickly, they inoculated all the soldiers in, uh, uh, in the army. And that transformed the situation because uh, from the moment uh, in which uh, uh, the Continental Army was not... Uh, um, uh, you know, it did not have to fear from smallpox anymore. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the, the situation, the military, uh, situation changed, uh, dramatically. And so, and, um, and, and this was a major turn, you know, in, in the actual American revolution. So That's adopting, uh, inoculation, which had been proved scientifically to be protective, uh, had uh, played a major role in the, you know, the, the birth of the United States. So I think that's a uh, lesson from the past that uh, we can, yeah. uh, uh, that is still relevant today. What I think is the common theme between the, the 18th century and today is uh, whether you follow what is considered as knowledge and, and knowledge means that there have been some scientific work. People have been compared, like I gave you the example for smallpox. We compare people with inoculation, other without. We saw, uh, 1% uh, death in the inoculated, 10% in the non-inoculated. This is, we know inoculation is protective. This is a knowledge. Okay. That's different from beliefs. You know, people who actually thought that it was defying providence, that it was not right to do that from a um, from a religious perspective, that uh, you know, you, you, there there would be some uh, uh, bad consequence of doing that, etc. Those were beliefs, and uh, so it's the it's you know the choice between following what we know because it's based on scientific evidence and not everything can be based on so because you know science is not uh sufficiently developed to do that or may not be able to answer everything but when there is knowledge uh it's it's the alternative is either to follow it or to follow beliefs and most of the 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 fears that people have about vaccines are essentially beliefs I mean, mm-hmm. the link between uh, vaccines and, and, and autism, etc. there is no scientific proof that it exists. So it's purely right. a belief. And, and right. I, I think that's where the analogy is. Uh, hopefully, our society, and it is, our society is much more prone to accept knowledge than beliefs. But there are some domains where uh, uh, still... It, it, it's very difficult, and uh, hopefully, it's not going to get worse uh, in, in the coming uh, months. We can hope not. Yes, we can. We can only hope, which is why we're, you know, trying to put this podcast out there to, you know, 
hopefully educate and provide that knowledge to a broader audience about public health so mm. that they can make informed choices. Exactly. Yeah. So on a much lighter note, um, I know you're really, really busy. Obviously, you wear a lot of hats, but are you reading any books for fun right now? Or do you want to talk about something interesting that you're reading right now besides the, you know, American Journal of Public Health? <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I always have uh, several books that I, I read uh, simultaneously because um, they depends of what is my mood and mm-hmm. uh, and for me, reading is is my relaxing moment. You know, mm-hmm. when I know I have half an hour or you know, so I can read. That's the moment I feel entirely relaxed. So I have I have several books that. Uh, I'm reading uh, simultaneously also because some I have in in paper, some I have on my tablet, some I have on both. And uh, so what am I reading right now? I'm reading uh, a book by uh, David France called uh, How to Survive a Plague. It's, it's, uh, it's, the subtitle is called That's The Inside Story of uh, How Citizens and Science Tamed AIDS. So it's a recent book. Uh, and it's fantastic. I mean, I awesome. just, it's, uh, the kind of book that when you start, you know, you, you just can't stop. The, yeah. the, 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 the author is really gifted. It's not easy to talk once again about the story of AIDS and, and, uh, the eighties and, and, and all mm-hmm. the fights and the mobilization and the pain and the sufferance, et cetera, that, uh, and make it, uh, a, a fascinating uh, and enthralling book, and and it's fantastic. So I, I'm reading this. Uh, some I, before that, I had read uh, uh, by one of my favorite uh, current historians, uh, David uh, Evans, uh, a book called "The Pursuit of Power," and Richard Evans, sorry. And uh, this is the history of nineteenth state, nineteenth century Europe. And I, I did a review for the American Journal of Public Health about that. But what when I read it, he talked about um, uh, Charles Dickens, and uh, and I, I talked a lot about him. And I, I thought, you know, I haven't read any Dickens since I was age ten or twelve. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And reading those children, you know, so-called children books when you are uh, an adult is a totally different experience. Yeah. So I, I took, I'm reading Oliver Twist again. And, <laughs> nice. Uh, and actually, it's, it's a completely different experience. You know, when you, you're 10 or 12, you just, you know, into the story, you know, you, you're, mm-hmm. you're just witnessing the existence of this poor Oliver Twist, etc. But when you are my age, you have some distance and you, you have, sure. you see the structure of yes. the book and how it is built and why you have this scene and, or the other one. And, and you get into all the, into the brain of the author. And it's mm-hmm. fantastic. I love that. And, uh, the third book I have right now, yeah, it's, um, it's David Maculo. It's uh, it's a book called uh, John Adams. It's actually the the story of of the. Oh yeah, I'm familiar with that one. And uh, how do you say? How do you pronounce it? By the way, Macula. 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 And uh, I like I like this historian very much. Uh, he's uh, an incredible storyteller. 
And the way he actually has revisited all the, the American Revolution and, uh, and that period of the turn of the, uh, the 18th and 19th century is remarkable. I had just read before 1662. Now I'm reading this one. It's, those are, those are free, great books. So I'm nice. actually always hoping that I will have a moment or before I go to sleep or when I'm tired in the train coming back from DC, I just can't work anymore. I, I take my tablet and I read the, some of those. And so that's what very I have. Very industrious man. Yeah, my goodness. <laughs> so just as a last thing, um, I, I'm assuming that, do you have anything you'd like to promote or plug? Um, I know you do the AJPH podcast. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. It's thanks to you. <laughs> I did not start that podcast, but no, I'm you honored to be helpful. <laughs> you didn't start it, but you actually uh, gave me uh, some ideas of what how I could develop it. And I have to say, I had become a little bit tired of, of doing, you know, these summaries that. Uh, yeah, Sounded like, if I understand well, audio books, and uh, <laughs> so so I I followed your advice, and uh, and now I'm doing interviews, and awesome. uh, and uh, so the first interview was in the podcast of uh, the the month of March. Uh, it was about gun control, and uh, mm -hmm. and I think. It, you know, the, the interview made me realize how much more I myself could learn about right. the articles I'm pub publishing because our authors, they know so much more than they can put in those uh, uh, 3,500 words or a little bit yes. more or a little bit less. And they, they have a, a very rich vision mm -hmm. of, uh, of their field. So this month, uh, the issue of uh, the April issue of... Um, AJPH is about uh, the driverless car, you know, oh, the cool. automated car. Awesome. And, uh, and uh, so I interviewed uh, the person who wrote uh, the main paper and uh, the, another person who wrote the, uh, an editorial. And they just describe what, how our streets are going to look 10 years from now, you know? Yeah. And, and um, the, the ethical problem that I realized, and they explain why uh, driverless cars, because they, this is a paradox, you know, are mm -hmm. safer. I mean, you remove right. the driver from the car and you get the safer car. <laughs> this is imagine? a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and when they explain why, you get it immediately. You know, right. the, the the driver's car doesn't text, doesn't drink, doesn't. <laughs> smoke. I mean, mm -hmm. everything. So uh, I have this, and um, I also, you know, I do podcasts in in English. And in in Spanish, I used to have a translation, you know, which is incredible, checked by incredible. people uh, around the world uh, to make sure it was perfect with respect to the Spanish. But now, I'm doing different interviews on the English side and on the Spanish side. And that uh, is so oh, cool. And I imagine that the uh, transition from driving our own cars to the driverless cars is probably, I don't know what I can compare it to, like maybe when 
when banks may went online and people just was like, ah, so I can move money around without actually touching the money. And, uh, is this going to work? Is the computer going to lose everything? Uh But then it's actually more accurate that way because people make mistakes. Absolutely. That's, that's, I think, you know, that's a very good analogy. What I thought when they described to me the future, I imagined that moment in which I threw away my typewriter because for for a long time, you know, I had both because I, I, I didn't know how long, you know, this kind of huge machine I had both, which was supposed to be a, a, um, laptop computer but it was enormous and uh you know i didn't know if i would have to go back to my typewriter at some point so i kept it but at some point i had to throw it away because clearly i would never use it again so i think that's the kind of transition you know from one type of car to the other that's gonna yeah i it's a it's crazy to think that we'll see that in our lifetime and actually very soon yes you know i just Oh man, but that means more time for us to read, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on the on the uh, on the other seat of the car, even on exactly. the driver's seat, you can read now. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Doctor Morabia. It was wonderful to talk to you. I I could probably talk to you for another two hours, honestly. Thank so. you. So. <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed it very much too. I mean, you are. And I learned to your taste. Just watch out. We'll have you back. <laughs> oh, you are now Dr. Moravia, friend of the show. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, you have a wonderful weekend, and I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. Okay. You All too. Right. All Thank right, you bye. very much. Bye-bye, both of you. Bye. Today's public health fact. In the early days of what we now call the field of public health, the typical workday looked a lot different than it does today. The public health department would would deploy rat catchers to help control the spread of disease, which was exacerbated by poor housing and sanitary conditions. Even though housing conditions have improved, if you live in or have ever been to New York City, you are probably aware that city rats continue to be an ongoing issue. Which is why City Hall is deploying its army of spayed, neutered, and vaccinated feral cats to help control the rat population.